Amen. How many spiritual roads are there that can actually lead us into heaven? And how many saviors are able to cleanse us from the stain of our sins? Without debate, these questions will quickly stir up controversy with those who are currently rejecting our Redeemer Jesus. And when it comes to the Christian faith, you know, one of the most controversial dogmas uh, that is sure to ruffle the feathers of those who don't believe in Jesus, well, it's the the doctrine that, that the Apostle Peter presented by the power of the Holy Spirit on the day when he informed the religious leaders of Israel that Jesus is the only Savior. And the reason why is because, according to Peter, uh, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm, of course, referring to the name Jesus. And in order to grasp the basis for our belief, we should take some time to consider the unique nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we can better understand this claim of Christ's supremacy. Well, here in our text today, we find Paul. He's helping his audience to understand how unique our Savior, Jesus, actually is. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll you know, begin to realize that you know, Jesus is the only Savior, and for many good reasons. For example, Christ Jesus is unique through his incarnation. We'll also consider how Christ Jesus is also unique through his crucifixion. And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider how Christ is unique through his exaltation. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's presenting us with a perfect picture of our unique Savior, Jesus. As you make your way to the second chapter of Philippians, well, I want to take a moment here to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul began this book by encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to become those believers who were preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He was commending them for, for, for the way that they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, Paul then goes on to take this time to present them with the doctrinal distinctives which sets our Savior apart from any other spiritual charlatan that might claim to be another Christ. With this as the focus, if you would, let's pick up our study of Philippians chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5. Here Paul declares, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's describing the unique nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in order to define the incomparable character of Christ Jesus, Paul began by reminding his readers about the title of our Messiah. Notice again there at the end of verse 5, there Paul refers to our Redeemer as Christ Jesus. Now just to be clear, the title Christ 
It's translated from the Greek word Christos, which simply means anointed. When we refer to Jesus as the Christ, we're saying he's the anointed one. It's also interesting to note that the Greek word Christos is synonymous with the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. And so regardless of whether we use the title Messiah or the title Christ, what we're saying is that Jesus is anointed. Now, in light of this definition, I should take a moment to point out that there are actually many people in the Bible who are called anointed. For example, the high priests of Israel were all referred to uh, with that term Messiah or anointed. Same was true for the kings of Israel. They were called anointed because they were anointed for the position. The prophet Isaiah even refers to a Gentile king named Cyrus as the Lord's anointed one. And not only that, but we also find Paul referring to Christians as being anointed by Christ Jesus. Now, with all this in mind, we can see then that the title Christ, it's not as unique as we might imagine. You know, when we refer to Jesus as the Christ, in our minds we're thinking, oh, that's, that's a title that is only used of Jesus, when in fact... The the title uh, anointed or Christ or Messiah is used of many different people. At the same time, though, I should also point out that this title is uniquely used of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's commonly used of many, but uniquely used in reference to our Savior. And to prove my point, I want to take a moment to consider the way that the Apostle John describes Jesus as the Christ. And so hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 20. Now, as you make your way to the 20th chapter of John's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Old Testament actually contains many messianic prophecies which prophetically point to the coming of the Christ. And according to the Apostle John, all of those messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament were actually pointing to Jesus, who he calls the Christ. Let's consider how he puts it here in John chapter 20. If you would look with me there at verse 30, there he declares, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is, notice, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. From this, we can see here that John, he wrote his gospel account so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's not referring to Jesus as a Christ, but the Christ. In other words, Jesus isn't just one of the many who have been anointed like the kings or the priests of Israel. And so Jesus isn't just like, you know, another king who was anointed just like all the other kings or another priest who's anointed like all the other priests. No, no. Jesus is uniquely the Christ because he is the one who has been anointed in a very unique way that is unlike the kings and the priests who came before him. To make my case, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2. I want to take a closer look at the point that Paul is making here. And if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5, here Paul declares, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, I want to take a moment here to consider, what is Paul saying here? What, What does he mean when he informs his audience that Christ Jesus was in the form of God because he was equal with God. What does this even mean? 
And in order to understand, you know, the, the conundrum here, uh, you know, when, when, when Paul informs his audience that Christ Jesus was in the form of God and equal with God, the question is, well, what form does God take? In order to answer this question, it'll help you to know that the word form, which is found there in verse 6, it's actually translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the external appearance of an individual. And in this context, Paul was referring to the external, you know, the external appearance of God. And yet, remember, God is infinitely immaterial and therefore invisible. So what form does God take? I like the way that Paul explained it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's verse 17 where he declares this. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. From this we can see that our eternal king is immortal, which is to say that he's not contained or bound within a mortal body. You know, some people like to paint God the Father, like, you know, as, as, as this, you know, white-bearded, large man, and Jesus Christ, you know, his son, just a little bit smaller and with a, and with a, with a brown-haired beard and nice blue eyes, you know, I like to call him Malibu Jesus. And, but, but, you know, there have been people who have painted Jesus and God the Father in these sorts of ways, and yet, listen, the King Eternal is immortal, meaning that he doesn't, he's not bound within a mortal body, and he's invisible. He has to be invisible because he has to be immaterial because he's infinite. If the infinite God was made up of matter, then there would be no place where the matter of the infinite God didn't exist. There would be no room for creation because the matter of the infinite God would take up all space everywhere. So he has to be immortal, immaterial, and invisible, so he's without form. Now, don't get me wrong, because God can most certainly manifest himself in any way that he chooses. He can manifest himself as a burning bush. He can manifest himself as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire or these sorts of ways. God can manifest himself in you know, all kinds of various forms, like when the Holy Spirit manifests himself as the dove that came down and you know, rest upon Jesus during his baptism. God can manifest himself in many different forms, but yet when it comes to the infinite essence of our creator, it's important to realize that God is the immortal and invisible one who eternally exists without form. And so according to Paul here, Christ Jesus, then if he was in the form of God, what does that mean? Well, that he was equally formless prior to his incarnation. I want to consider the way that Paul puts it again here in Philippians chapter 2. If you would look, let's back up and begin reading at verse 5. Here again, Paul declares, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now from this, we can see here that Christ Jesus was actually formless in his equality with God, prior to his physical incarnation. But then came the day when he then clothed himself in humanity as he took on the form of a bondservant. He was formless in eternity past, but then took on the form of a a bondservant. The formless deity of the pre-incarnate Christ was contained then within the physical form of his humanity through the virgin birth 
uh, of Mary. In this way, the physical incarnation of Christ was then an anointing that actually concealed the glory of his divine reputation, thereby enabling him to come, live a life as a human, and then offer himself as a sinless substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. I like the way that John explains it in the first chapter of his gospel account. It's there in verses 1 through 3 where he declares this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now just to be clear, uh, you know, when the Apostle John refers to the Word who was with God and was God, He's actually using the Greek word logos. That, that word word is translated from the Greek word logos, which in this context, it's a reference to the divine mind of God. And we must not fail to notice that John was actually referring to the logos who was with God, showing some sort of distinction, and yet was God, showing equality there. And, and then he refers to the logos with personal pronouns. We find the personal pronouns he and him there in verses 2 and 3. That the word, the logos, was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's using the personal pronoun he. And then the personal pronoun again, him, there. So that when Jesus eventually starts a Facebook page, he can let us know that he identifies as he and him, right? No, that's not the reason. Listen, the Logos of the Lord is another title that is used for the second person of our triune God. Within the Godhead, there is the Father, the Logos, and the Holy Spirit. And the Logos came through the incarnation and is the Son of God. Further proof of my point can be found in the same chapter of John. John chapter 1, verse 14, there the Apostle John goes on to tell us that the word, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this phrase, dwelt among us, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who abide in a tabernacle or within a tent. And what this means then is that the infinite deity of the Logos came and tabernacled amongst us by covering himself with human flesh. He was formless, prior to the incarnation, and then took on form through the incarnation so that he might be anointed with human frailty and so that the Son of God could come and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And with that being the case, well, we can be certain that the anointing of Christ Jesus is completely unique to every other anointing. This wasn't just some anointing of oil. This was the anointing of a, a human form through this supernatural incarnation. Sadly, there are many who are quick to reject this unique anointing of Christ Jesus. Some Gnostics would argue that he didn't come in literal flesh, and, and others will reject Jesus as being you know, uh, uniquely uh, uh, infinite in his preexistence. And with, uh, with all that, that being the case, you know, we should take some time to consider the warning that Paul goes on to present to the Christians in Colossae. And so if you would hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and I'd like you to turn to the book of Colossians, specifically Colossians chapter. Chapter 2. 
As we make our way to the second chapter of Colossians, I just want to take a moment to address some of the arguments of those who attempt to diminish the unique nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, some insist that Jesus was a good teacher, but that's all. They think he was a good teacher, but nothing more. Well, Jesus taught that he is the great I am, and so just ask him, so do you believe that Jesus is God incarnate, the great I am? Oh, no. Well, how can he be a good teacher if what he's teaching about himself is wrong. They want him to be a good teacher, but they're not willing to admit that he is God incarnate. Others assure us that, well, he was a good prophet, but not God incarnate. Then there are those who would have us to believe that Jesus is just one of the many ascended masters like Buddha or Krishna. Well, knowing that this would all come down in this way, you know, Paul warned the Christians there in Colossae to, to make sure that they didn't you know, slip into these heresies. And so if you would look with me here at Colossians chapter 2, I want to begin reading there at verse 8 because here Paul declares, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Listen, Jesus isn't just some other ascended master, one of many who have come to bless us or something. You know, he, he wasn't just a good teacher or one of the prophets like Elijah or Isaiah. No, instead, the fullness of the Logos of God was clothed with the tabernacle of human frailty. And what this means is that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son who was an uniquely anointed for the very specific purpose of coming and offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Simply put, Christ Jesus is unique through the anointing of his incarnation. Not only that, but Christ Jesus is also unique through his crucifixion. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 2, because here we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the way in which our incarnate Savior was crucified for our sins. And with that, I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 5. Here Paul declares, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And notice, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now here in verse 8, we find Paul, he's highlighting the fact that the physical body of Christ Jesus was crucified there on a Roman cross. And in order to understand why this is so significant, well, it'll help us to know that various forms of crucifixion has been, have been used in ancient times in order to carry out various forms of capital punishment. And you know, according to one record, crucifixion was practiced by the Persians throughout the 6th century BC. And not only that, but it was then in the 4th century BC when Alexander the Great brought this practice to, to uh, Mediterranean uh, countries there in the east. And then by the 3rd century BC, the Romans began perfecting crucifixion until Constantine finally abolished the practice in the 4th century AD. Now think about that for a moment. We see that crucifixion was practiced in various forms 
from the 6th century B.C. until the 4th century A.D. That being the case, you know, death by crucifixion wasn't entirely uncommon. Throughout this period of ancient history, crucifixion was not uncommon. For example, the Persian king Darius I, well, he crucified 3,000 of his political enemies there in Babylon. This took place during the 6th century B.C. Or after the Varus War in 4 BC, the Roman general Varus crucified 2,000 Jews in order to intimidate the inhabitants of Judea. Crucifixion was not uncommon. And seeing how it was a completely shameful and brutal way to die, you know, the Romans typically reserved the cross for the worst offenders like anti-Rome zealots and political activists. And yet still, crucifixion wasn't uncommon. There were many who were crucified for one reason or for another throughout this period of time. With that being the case, we should take a moment to consider then how the cross of Christ, though not uncommon, was completely unique. In order to prove my point, I want to consider a prophecy that King David presented concerning the cross of Christ. And so hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Psalms. If you would, let's make our way to Psalm chapter 22. As you make your way to the 22nd Psalm, I just want to take a moment to point out that the prophetic lyrics that we find in this song, they were actually written during the 10th century B.C. And the reason why that's important is this, that this this psalm that includes this prophecy about the death of our Messiah was written a few hundred years before crucifixion was even invented. So now, with that in mind, let's consider the lyrics of this song. Look with me there at the 22nd Psalm. I want to begin reading at verse 14. Here, King David declares, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare, uh, they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now here in the lyrics of this song, we find King David. He's presenting us with a prophetic picture of our Savior's sacrifice. And while it's true that David described the way that the Roman soldiers divided the clothing of Christ Jesus, we must not fail to notice that he also describes the way that his heart is poured out like wax. And of course, we know that Jesus was pierced in the side with a Roman spear there while he was there on the cross. And and, and we also see that the dogs have surrounded him, which is a reference to the Gentiles, and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed him, which is a reference to the religious rulers there in Israel. But then we see this mention of his hands and his feet being pierced. King David was prophetically pointing to the day when our Savior would would die with pierced hands and feet. And while it's easy for us to understand that this is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we must not fail to realize that this prophecy was presented before crucifixion was even invented. And yet God is telling us in advance how the Messiah would die for our sins. Mark later confirmed the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's in the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel account. It's verses 24 and 25. There Mark assures us that the soldiers nailed him, speaking of Jesus. 
the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross. And then what happened? They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. From this, we can see that Christ Jesus was crucified according to the prophecy that King David presented in the 22nd Psalm. And while it's true that crucifixion wasn't uncommon at that point in time in history, well, we can be certain that the crucifixion of Christ Jesus was completely unique. And the reason why is because this was the only crucifixion that was prophetically announced before crucifixion was even invented and a thousand years before it actually took place. How amazing is that? Not only that, but the crucifixion of Christ Jesus is also unique because it was an act of obedience rather than a just punishment. To prove my point, let's consider the way that Paul explains it back in the book of Philippians. If you would, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2. I want to take another look here at verse 8. Here again, Paul declares, being found in appearance as a man, so after, after the incarnation, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. As we take a closer look at this verse, we must not fail to notice that Jesus wasn't crucified on a Roman cross because he was deserving of capital punishment. This punishment wasn't because Jesus had broken the laws or had you know, sinned against God or, or had sinned against the government. No, instead, the crucifixion of Christ Jesus... It was an act of obedience on the part of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He didn't deserve to be crucified, but he willfully offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ willfully humbled himself before our Heavenly Father so that he could offer himself a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins so that we might be saved. In order to, to, to grasp the, the humble obedience of our Savior Jesus, I want to consider the prayer that he prayed just before his arrest. It's in Luke chapter 22. It's verse 42 where Christ Jesus cries out, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This was the night of his arrest, just before his crucifixion, when Christ Jesus recommitted himself to obeying the will of our Heavenly Father. And listen, this was an incredible commitment because the sacrifice of our Savior, it not only included the pain of the cross, which was no doubt excruciating, but it was there on that cross as he was suffering the pain of crucifixion. That's when the Lord Jesus also bore our sins on his body. And, and he received the punishment that we deserve. He received the punishment that we deserve for all the sins that we've committed. And in this way, God, well, he was choosing to be just by punishing every sin while also becoming the justifier of those who will simply trust in the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In order to further grasp my point, let's consider the way that Paul explains this in the letter that he sent to the church in Rome. So hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And as we make our way to the 8th chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to present you with an important question, and the question is this. Has anyone else ever offered themselves as an acceptable sacrifice for your sins? 
Has anyone else ever come along and in a state of sinless perfection offered themselves as a sacrifice to pay the price for your sins? Did Buddha die for our sins? Did he even claim to be the guy that was going to come and die for our sins? Nope. How about Krishna? No. Did Muhammad die for your sins? Did Maitreya, or how about Yogananda, or Hilarion, did, did any of the ascended masters ever claim that they were going to die for your sins, let alone even attempt to? And the answer is no. Not a single one of them. Not one of the so-called ascended masters ever offered themselves as a sacrifice for our sins. Thankfully for us, there is one who did. God the Father sent his only begotten son to receive the punishment that we deserve so that he can remain just and yet become the justifier of those who trust in Jesus Christ. And I want to consider how Paul explains this here in Romans chapter 8. So if you would look with me there beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son, In the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the Christians in Rome to understand that those who trust in Christ Jesus have been set free from the condemnation of the law. And the reason why is because the only begotten Son of God has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. He came and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law so that he could then impute his righteousness to those who trust in him. And it was there on the cross where Christ Jesus was crucified. It's there where he he condemned sin in the flesh so that those who trust in him can escape the condemnation of the law. And in this way, the crucifixion of Christ Jesus has enabled him to become the one and the only Savior of sinners like us. From this, we see then that Christ Jesus is unique through his physical incarnation, and at the same time, Christ Jesus is also unique through his, uh, his, through his crucifixion, because through his crucifixion, sinners can now be saved. Thirdly and finally, we can see that Christ Jesus is unique through his exaltation. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 2. Here in Philippians 2, we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the exaltation of our Savior Jesus. And I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 9. There Paul declares, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we take a closer look here at these verses, I want to first focus our attention on the phrase highly exalted, which is found there in verse 9. The original Greek word is used in reference to those who are raised to a level of supreme majesty. 
The same word was also used of those who are elevated to the highest rank and the highest power. And as we consider the meaning of this word in light of its context, well, there should be no doubt that God the Father elevated Jesus Christ to the highest rank and power over the entirety of the creation. And I like the way that Paul explains this in Colossians chapter 1. It's here where he describes Jesus by declaring this. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Uh, More simply put, The Logos of the Lord Jesus is the creator of every created thing. The Logos of the Lord Jesus is the creator of every created thing. Therefore, he is also the supreme savior who is superior over the entirety of his creation. And while it's true that he humbled himself by allowing uh, his creation to crucify him, It's also true that the humanity of Christ Jesus has now been exalted through the physical resurrection. And in this way, God the Father has revealed the preeminence of Jesus over all creation. To further explain my point, let's consider the way that Paul explains this here in our text today. So look with me again here at Philippians chapter 2. I want to draw your attention back to verse 9. Here again, Paul declares, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. Now, uh, here in these verses we find Paul. He's describing the way that the exaltation of Christ Jesus includes the elevation that has resulted in the superiority and even the supremacy of our Savior's name. Now, just to be clear, this is not to suggest that Jesus' name is more important than the name of God, which is Yahweh or yod heh This is not to say that the name Jesus is superior to Yahweh. No, instead, the name of Jesus has been exalted over every name of those who have been created. So in the context here, we're talking about everything on the earth, everything under the earth, everything in heaven. Within all of creation, the most important name is Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father. And since Yahweh is our uncreated creator, well, then it only stands to reason that Paul is not including the name Yahweh. In order to to further explain my point here, it's crucial for us to remember that the name Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. Therefore, when Paul informs us that God has given Jesus the name which is above every name, he's effectively informing us that the name, which means Yahweh is salvation, is greater than every other name of any other created person. One reason why is due to the fact that the name of Jesus actually reminds us of the fact that Yahweh is the only one who can save us. Or to put, uh, put it in the way, the, way that, the way that the Apostle Peter put it, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
The only name by which we can be saved is the name of Jesus Christ, which reminds us that Yahweh is salvation. With that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised by the supremacy that Paul describes here in our text today. And with this as the focus, let's take another look here, beginning at verse 9, because here again, Paul declares, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's describing the exaltation of Christ Jesus. And at the same time, he's also assuring his audience of our Savior's supremacy as he describes the way that every person is eventually going to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. At some point in time, every single created person is going to bow a knee. Every single created person is going to confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, and for the specific purpose of glorifying God the Father. Now, just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that the word Lord, it's found there in verse 11, it's actually translated from a Greek word which refers to a sovereign ruler who possesses the position and the power to reign with authority over that which is under their control. The word was used at this point in history by servants who sought to acknowledge the authority of their master. When a servant referred to the, uh, their master as Lord, that what, that what they were saying was, you're my master. What this means is that Jesus Christ is not only our Messiah, he is our master. When we refer to Jesus as Christ, we're saying Jesus is the Messiah. When we refer to Jesus as Lord, we're saying he is our master. And it's sad to say that there are many Christians in the church today who love Jesus as Messiah, but they don't want him as Lord. They, they want Jesus as Messiah, not Master. We want the fire insurance, so long as I can just get back to the way I want to live my life. Jesus is Christ and Lord. If he is your Messiah, make sure he's your Master too. Sadly, there are many in the world today who refuse to submit to the sovereign authority over our Savior, and they think that this will work out for the rest of eternity. I assure them that, that it won't. There's coming a day when every knee is going to bow, and those who would not bow their knee to Jesus in this world, they will find themselves standing before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ, and there they will bow a knee. And it's there where, when, when they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord just prior to being cast into the lake of fire. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we do, all do well to bow the knee and confess his authority over our lives before it's too late. In order to further grasp the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, we should take some time to consider the arguments of those who you know, would have us to believe that the pre-incarnate Christ is really nothing more than a created being, kind of like an angel or something like that. And with this as the focus, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to, to the book of Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And as we make our way to the first chapter of Hebrews, I just want to take a moment to point out that uh, you know, there are groups like, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses have been led to believe that Jesus is actually the human incarnation of Michael the archangel. 
when the J-dubs come knocking on your door, you know, and they start talking about Jesus Christ, what they're really talking about is Michael the archangel coming in the likeness of men. In similar fashion, the Mormon leaders also teach that Jesus was the brother of Satan during the pre-existence. Seeing how Satan is a fallen angel, well, wouldn't that then mean Jesus would also be an angel? Sadly, there are many, uh, you know, in all kinds of different religious systems that believe that Jesus, while not just being human, isn't quite yet God either. And so they try to make him in the preexistence of some sort of spirit or angel, angelic being and that sort of thing. And what these people fail to realize is that God actually refers to the Son as God. God the Father actually refers to God the Son as God. Uh, To prove my point, let's consider the way that Paul puts it here in Hebrews chapter 1. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. And when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than who? The angels. Having become so much better than the angels and has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, to none of the angels did God ever say this. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. To which of the angels did God ever say that? To none of them. But when he again, verse 6, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. How many is all the angels? That's all of them. It's not all minus one. To all of the angels, he said, God says, you know, worship him. And, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says this. What does he say? Your throne O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Paul here is presenting us with a clear contrast between the angels who are created beings and the incarnate Son who is preeminent over all creation. While it's true that the humanity of Jesus is the Son of God through the incarnation that took place there in the womb of the Virgin Mary... It's also true that the deity of Jesus Christ is the everlasting Logos of God and therefore God forever and ever. Jesus didn't become a God, as the Mormons would argue. He always was God and always will be God. He is the third or the second person of the triune Godhead. Within the, within the Godhead, we have God the Father, God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit, all three existing eternally and co-equally. And, and those who come along and say, well, God became the Son in the incarnation. And then, and, you know, God became the Spirit, you know, in the resurrection. No. Because God the Father is saying here about God the Son, your throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. And it's for this reason that God the Father commanded all of the angels to bow down and worship before the only begotten Son of God because he is uniquely exalted above everything else. I like the way that Paul sums it up in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's verse 16 where he declares, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. According to Paul, it's God who was manifested in the flesh, not an angel. God was manifested in the flesh. The Logos of God was clothed with human frailty. And it was during the days of his earthly ministry when Jesus was then justified by the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's at the baptism scene where we find the incarnate Son of God, the Logos in humanity, being baptized by John the Baptist at the same point in time. God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends in the the form of a dove. There we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all existing at the same time. Those who teach the heresy of modalism that, you know, the Father became the Son and the Son became the Holy Spirit, that's just straight-up heresy. Our God is a triune being, and it's the Logos who was clothed with human frailty so that he could be uniquely exalted in his resurrection and ascension. In this way, we can see then how our Savior is uniquely qualified to save every sinner who will simply trust in him. As we begin to wrap up this study, I realize that there are those who are offended by this Christian dogma that Christ Jesus alone is able to save sinners from the condemnation that we actually deserve. And while the doctrine of our Savior's supremacy is offensive to those who prefer religious pluralism, they, they have yet to provide us with any proof that there is another Savior. When I witness the people and say that, you know, Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved and they're all upset with me and offended about it, you know, I don't mind asking him, can you, can you present me with another Savior? Can you show me anyone else who has ever died for our sins? And they can't. It's for this reason that we should take time to help every unbeliever to understand that Jesus is the only way. And you might be thinking, well, I don't want to offend anybody. Listen, I was offended into Christianity. I kid you not. I was offended into Christianity. The person that was leading me to the Lord Jesus and presenting me with the the basic belief that Jesus is the only Savior, I was offended by that. For them to tell me that, you know, Buddha and Krishna and all the rest of them aren't equally valid ways to get to heaven. I was offended by that. And yet, it was the offense that got me to start thinking and researching and considering the the argument. Honestly, I set out to prove my buddy wrong. But it was in the offense that I felt like I had to defend my own point of view. And so if if you're trying to avoid offending people, listen, you might be actually helping them to retain their unbelief. We have to stop worrying about offending people. 
We need to start presenting them with the truth, you know. In, in, in my offense, I, I began to realize how ridiculous this was. I was punk rock bungee. I was a bouncer at clubs. I was, I was known for picking people up and throwing them out because they got too rowdy. And, and as a punk rock kid, I didn't care about what anybody thought. And then this buddy of mine who got saved comes along and says, Jesus is the only way. And I'm like, oh, my feelings are hurt. I can't believe you would say such a thing. How could you? I'm so offended. Clutch my pearls. What, ha- what happened to punk rock bungee? All of a sudden, I'm all hurt feelings because somebody said Jesus is the only way and that he loves me and he wants to save me. And <gasps> It was in the offense that my gears started turning and I had to start realizing that there is an afterlife and there's only one Savior. Quit worrying about offending people. And start preaching the good news that there is a Savior. You know, those who prefer pluralism and the idea that there are many ways to, to heaven, you know, I would just argue, uh, I, I'm, I'm surprised that there is a way. They want multiple ways. And I'm thinking, you know, God, does, God didn't need to pri- provide us with one way, and yet he did. And now you're going to sniff at that and, and, and treat it like it's not good enough for you? I think, God, there is a way to be saved. And so we should encourage people to choose that one way, that one Savior who can actually save us. And with this as the goal, I encourage you to remember that Christ Jesus is unique because he alone is the incarnation of the infinite Logos. Christ Jesus is also unique through the crucifixion by which he paid the price for our redemption so that we could be saved by faith in him. And finally, Christ Jesus is unique through his exaltation because he is the one who is the Lord over all of creation. And we would do well to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And knowing that every knee will eventually bow and every tongue will eventually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we ought to risk the offense by encouraging every unbeliever to embrace the grace of the only begotten Son of God so that they too might enjoy all of the salvific benefits that belong to those who trust in our unique Christ. Let's pray.